Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. You will hear profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, yes. But more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. The goal here, my friends, is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose, and it is a choice, to wake up from accidental living so that you can truly live inspired. Well, with Memorial Day in the United States around the corner, I thought it would be awesome to introduce you to a man who models what real sacrifice and what real overcoming looks like in action. Let me give you just a little bit of the backstory of this gentleman before I introduce him to you. He's one of my heroes, by the way. When I was 13 years old, I found myself in the back of a a van uh, on the way. By the way, this is going to be a good story, I promise, so hang on. The back of a van on the way to Hilton Head for a family vacation. Right before we loaded up the car, my grandfather gave me an old tape. Uh, For the younger kids listening right now, there used to be devices uh, that, you know, two inches by three inches, you would put into a radio device, you would hit play and it would, it would work. It would make noise somehow. It wasn't all digital back in the day. So he gave me this tape. He said, John, while you're gone, listen to it. Well, on the car ride to Hilton Head with earphones on, I hit play. And I listened to the life story of a gentleman named Charlie Plum. Charlie Plum was in the Navy. He was an aviation pilot. He was a fighter. He worked and served and flew during Vietnam. And on his 75th mission, this is the one that ultimately when he lands, it's his final one would bring him home. But on that final mission, Charlie Plum gets shot down and then spends the next six years uh, in a situation in a concentration camp in jail and this experience that I can't fathom. And yet he shares, he tells the experience, the story of what it was like, of all that he endured, of what got him through. I got to hear it on this recording. It blew me away as a child because a couple of years before that I'd been burned and I was struggling myself and I wasn't sure what kind of life I might have. And then I hear Charlie Plum step into my headset and remind me that John O'Leary, you can do it. You can rise above, you can overcome, you can achieve. And today, my friends, that little boy that he inspired decades ago had the opportunity to interview him and now has the honor of sharing this interview with each one of you. Charlie Plum is a hero. And as we move toward Memorial Day, where we lift up and we elevate and we celebrate those who gave all, what better opportunity than now is it to bring in a gentleman who reminds us all about sacrifice, about freedom, uh, about overcoming, and about the truth that the best is yet to come. So buckle up, 
put your hands together and get ready for an incredible ride. Let me introduce you to my friend and my hero, Charlie Plum. What a pleasure, John, to be with you, fellow survivor. The fellow survivor is right. In fact, in the book that you sent my way, it says on the very first page to John O'Leary, fellow survivor. <laughs> uh, and so for me to receive this book from you with those words and for us to be kind of whispered in the same sentence by you, my friend, I really look up to you. I deeply respect you. And I'm grateful you're making time to spend a little bit of time with our community today, Charlie. Well, thank you for that. And uh, the book, hey, right back at you. And I've read your book and listened to your podcast. And you and I are probably more on the same page than about anybody I know. Why, Philosophically, uh, yes. religiously, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of similarity between our, our lives and our, and our uh, passions. Well, Charlie, we're going to talk a lot about your life and a lot about your passions and ultimately what it means for the rest of us. But for, for those who may not yet know the name Charlie Plum, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about your life today. Today, I have a wonderful life. I'm absolutely living the dream. Uh, I am married to a wonderful lady. We have four kids, all grown, two married, uh, two grandchildren, one on the way. So uh, life is good. I continue to speak several times uh, a month all over the country, all over the world. Uh, I spoke in Indonesia last, uh, last month, and, um, and <laughs> which was kind of interesting. Uh, yes. And, and continue, to, uh, continue to tell my story. Well, and I am uh, deeply aware of your story. It was one that had triggered me as a young speaker to even consider having the audacity to, to unpack my life a little bit and share a little bit more of it with our, our, our community. So, Charlie Plum, you've dramatically impacted me. Before we talk about that and how you got to where you are today, let's go all the way back to your childhood. Where are you from, Charlie? I grew up in Kansas, a little tiny, tiny town in, uh, in eastern Kansas called Lee Compton. Um, it, between Lawrence and Topeka, okay. I, I, I grew up a rich kid, um, didn't have running water, uh, flushing toilet until I was nine, but we were rich in family unity and love. And I just had wonderful parents and wonderful sister and two wonderful brothers. And, uh, just, um, I, 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 I began my life in what a lot of people would call poverty. Yeah. But it certainly wasn't for us. Um, we, we lived it and loved it. Did you, did you as a child have any idea that you really were impoverished? No, did not. Uh, the whole community was impoverished. You know, um, some of the other kids uh, had televisions, and we didn't. Uh, and, but, you know, I don't remember envying, envying that because there was lots to do before the days of television. And, yeah, you know, imagine that. Kicking the, yeah, imagine that, kicking the cans and, you know, playing, playing under, the, under the lights and the moon and... So, yeah, I had a great childhood. It was uh, good Midwestern values, church-going people, um, just never locked a door. Yes. Everybody gave to everybody else. It, it was really wonderful. And I, I was so blessed to have a wonderful mother who taught me a lot about forgiveness and a wonderful father who taught me a lot about discipline. And uh, I, I, would, I would need both of those uh, qualities uh, in my survival in the prison camps. And let's uh, let's fast forward, not quiet to the camps, but even to uh, high school and beyond. Uh, Charlie, when you when you finished high school, what, what did you do with your life? You know, at age seventeen, I my parents couldn't afford to see me to college. I started looking for scholarships. I uh, I, I did the old 
shotgun approach. You know, I just sent my resume to everybody. Yes. I got an appointment to Annapolis, the Naval Academy. Uh, I had no idea what they did at Annapolis. The, the, the closest the closest relative I had in the military was a cousin in the Coast Guard. And, uh, but, and, and, you know, I'd like to tell you that, hey, I had these dreams of becoming an admiral and commanding ships and all this stuff, but that wasn't it. Uh, so at age 17, I got on that Greyhound bus in Kansas City, Kansas, and two days later I was pledging to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's how that happened. Uh, you're a 17-year-old Kansas boy. I, you, you, you barely saw running water in your, in your own house. You'd never been on a boat before. Uh, what, what is it like telling mom and dad, oh, by the way, I, I think I might be joining the Navy? You know, uh, I, my, my, I'll never forget this because my, a, a telegram came, that, uh, and my father was at home at the time, and, he, and the, the closest thing he could find was a green crayon and he wrote on, I still, have the, I still have the telegram, he wrote on green crayon in beautiful penmanship. He wrote, congratulations, son. <laughs> so, now, what, I, what I'm sure that my mother especially did not know was the pain and yes. the grief it was going to cause her, you know, when I was missing an action in Vietnam. Charlie, what, you're 17, and what year is that that you're on this Greyhound bus making your way to Annapolis? Uh, 1960. Uh, it, it, so you get to Annapolis, and uh, you're a young ensign or whatever the, the, the level is at that point. W- w- then what happens? I, I went through the Naval Academy. Uh, I wasn't particularly a, a, a prize student there. Uh, and everybody at the Naval Academy plays some sports, and so I played sports, but I wasn't a star there either. I guess I would, you know, I was kind of an also-ran kind of a guy, but I did make it through, and uh, and, and, and just surviving that place is... Uh, That's victory. It's <laughs> victory. Um, I was fascinated with airplanes. Yes. Before I went to the Naval Academy, I'd never ridden in an airplane. Uh, I'd never seen the ocean. I'd never been out of the four states of Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, and Missouri. Yes. Uh, and uh, and so uh, I, I, was, I had been fascinated as a child to see Piper Cubs fly over, thinking to myself, I wonder if I will ever be able to ride in one of those airplanes and actually, you know, be off the ground in an airplane. Well, through the Naval Academy, it, it, you know, it looked like, hey, that was, uh, that was someplace that graduates went was to, uh, to flight training. And, uh, and so I set my goals on flying for the Navy. And so when I graduated, I was one of a, you know, of the, 800 people that graduated, we had about 100 that went to flight training. So I went from there. I married my high school sweetheart. Um, she, had, she had hung on for the four years I was at the Naval Academy. And so we were married under the Arch of Swords outside the yes. chapel the day after I graduated. And we went straight to Pensacola, Florida to start Navy flight training. What's that like for this Kansas boy to uh, be newly wed and now in Pensacola learning how to hop in one of these these planes that you dreamed about getting up in the air as a child? What, what's that like for you, Charlie? It was unbelievable. You know, I just had to pinch myself every day to to know that I was doing what I was doing. It was just it was a dream come true in every way that, that my wonderful wife, uh, beautiful girl, uh, you know, had friends. I was just doing the, exactly what I wanted to do. So it was a dream. 
Vietnam and our involvement within it shows up in what year? Well, we we actually were secretly in Vietnam in 1963. I got my wings in 1965 and and uh, went through the replacement air group to fly the hottest airplane in the world at the time, the F-4 Phantom Jet. Yes. This is a uh, Mach 2 supersonic interceptor. And, uh, and, and again, you know, I'm this, I, I got my first choice, West Coast fighter pilot, man, I'm living the dream. I remember, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> on, the, on the day I was shot down, I remember thinking to myself, man, you know, not one hundredth of one percent of all the people in the world get to do what I do. Yes, I'm in control of this multi-gazillion-dollar bird, and and uh, I'm, you know, I, I remember looking uh, to the left and to my right and see all these other airplanes that uh, that were in the sky, and I just I felt very proud to be over there doing what I was doing. Charlie, you flew, I think, what seventy-four successful missions. That's right, 74 successful combat missions. I was five days before the end of my tour. Five days before I was to return to my wife and my friends and uh, and to go back home for a little R&R. V- Vietnam has become, you know, a, such a hot-button issue. I'm, I'm curious, as you are going flight after flight, sortie after sortie, up in that plane and risking your life and dropping bombs, did you believe in what you were doing? Did you did you think that you were making a difference and doing something that was truly worthy? I really did. Um, of course, I I took on the mantle of a warrior uh, and was doing what my commanding officers told me to do, and truly believed that we were doing something right. You know, we our, our uh, we we were stopping the spread of communism into South Vietnam. And, uh, you know, at that time, the domino theory uh, was alive and well that yes. these small countries were, were falling one by one, we'd be the last domino in the chain. And so um, I, I, I did. I really believed it. I thought I was, I thought I was doing um, uh, great work in serving my country. And so uh, there, was, there was no doubt in my mind that it was a, a justified war. Charlie, you, uh, the aircraft carrier you were stationed on is the Kitty Hawk. You take off the 75th time. Anything different about, about, about that morning? Uh, it, it, the feeling of, of, of confidence, maybe overconfidence. I, uh, you know, I, I was five days from, from the, the end of my tour, and I may have, you know, I may have just been a, a little overconfident and got into into places that he shouldn't have gotten into. Um, I, you know, I've thought back to that moment in time, obviously, over yes. the six years that I was a prisoner of war. About every day I thought back to what I could have done to keep me out of that, of that peril. And, um, and, I, and I remember, you know, thinking to myself, boy, you know, this is a piece of cake. This is another... This is just another milk run for me. Uh, I've done this 74, 73, 74 times, and and man, I'm good at this. I'm 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 really good. In fact, I I'm, I'm probably bulletproof. Yes. <laughs> Famous last words. I'm I'm, yep. I'm curious. You had six years to reflect on it, and then uh, decades since. Mm-hmm. Did you do anything that retrospectively you realized? You know what? Yes, that that was the mistake I made. Well, yes, I I do remember. 
I was uh, I was carrying missiles. I was not carrying bombs on that particular mission. I was on uh, this, the edge of the flight. I was on the left edge of the flight, supporting the bomb group. We were to we were to shoot down any enemy airplanes that would attack our bomb group. And so I I saw a blip on my radar scope, and I eased out of the formation to check this blip out. And I should not have done that. Uh, you know, you never leave your wingman. And, uh, and and I left my wingman that day to get outside the formation maybe a half or uh, three-quarters of a mile away from the rest of the flight to uh, to look at this bogey, what I you know thought was an enemy airplane. When I got close enough to see it, of course, that was the rules of engagement. We had to see an airplane before we could shoot it down. And when I got close enough to see it, I saw it was one of our own. It was a jamming airplane coming the opposite way. And so our closure rate was over 1,000 miles an hour because he was coming right right directly for me. Well, I later figured out he was actually jamming the, the, the missile sights so that they wouldn't shoot down the bomb group. Well, I was now outside the bomb group, so he wasn't protecting me because I had left my wingman and and, uh, and left to the side. Now, of course, this is all speculation. I, I I don't really know that that's what actually happened, but I did think about that moment in time and thinking to myself, well, dummy, you should never have left your flight group. So, Well, let, let's talk about what happens next. What do you, what do you remember about the next uh, sequence of events? My cockpit started to light up like a Christmas tree. I had all kinds of failures, pneumatic, hydraulic, engine, electrical. Uh, everything was uh, just going bad. I grabbed the stick to control the plane, and it was frozen. And, um, and so the airplane started to roll. It, it rolled upside down. And by this time, I recognized that the engines now were unwinding. Um, I I had felt a thump, but, you know, there was a lot of turbulence and a lot yes. of thumping, and, and there was flack that I'd, you know, I'd been hit before um, in other missions, and so I I wasn't particularly annoyed by this thump, but when all of my instruments started telling me that uh, they were shutting down, upside down, going down at about 500 miles an hour, I had to turn the airplane, airplane upright so my co-pilot at night could eject. Yes. And... Um, the stick was frozen. I couldn't roll the airplane. In fact, the only control I had left in an F-4 Phantom, the only manual control is the rudder. It's hydraulically boosted, but you could actually move it with your foot with about 40 pounds of pressure. So I jammed the rudder and said a prayer as loud as I could, and the airplane shuddered and rolled back upright where I ejected, my co-pilot ejected, and and uh, we found ourselves in parachutes floating down over enemy territory. Uh, you know, Charlie, I'm just going to kind of sit back and let you keep, keep, keep progressing. So what what happens as you uh, come out of the air and on, into the jungle and under the ground? I, you know, my first thought um, was to escape. Uh, how can I get myself out of this situation? And so I, I looked at the ground. I was over a rice paddy, so there was no no place to hide. Um, then I then I saw the enemy on the ground and they were shooting at me. I had uh, I, I had small arms fire snapping past my ears. <laughs> Just uh, I had flak anti aircraft artillery was going off all over. Um, so 
it was a busy morning. <laughs> I took a deep breath, tried to calm myself. I uh, bowed my head and I said a prayer. I, you know, felt that was uh, that was the only thing that I could do at that moment that would, yeah. would make any difference in uh, in what was going to happen. And I'll never forget that prayer. I, you know, I thought. Well, first of all, you know, I, I thought there's a purpose in this, and what I have to pray for is understanding the purpose and being strong in uh, in in surviving this. And then I prayed for my wife. This was my war and not hers, and uh, I just, you know, I knew how, what a challenge this would be. And at the end of the Vietnam War, uh, my wife would feel more pain from yes. the war than I did. She was 24, as was I. So she was to spend the next six years of her life trying to be uh, faithful to a guy that she didn't know was alive or dead. Yes. Didn't know if it'd ever come home, and if I ever did, that I'd be a burden to her the rest of her life. So with that, and they're still shooting at me, Um so with that, I, I hit the ground, sunk about waist deep in a, a rice paddy, uh, surrounded by 20 or 30, uh, and, and mostly peasants, with primarily uh, shovels and axes and farming tools. Yes. They started to cut off all of my gear. And, you know, everything that I, I was wearing, flight suit, uh, G-suit, uh, torso harness, uh, oxygen mask, all this stuff um, was was on zippers or Velcro, and uh, they were cutting this stuff off. I had taken my two-way radio out while I was still in the air and um, pulled the, the antenna off and tossed the antenna one way and uh, tossed the radio into the rice paddy the other way because I didn't want them using it as a yes. decoy, which they were they were known to do and so i got rid of that i had um i was i was a, the uh, schedules officer for the squadron and i had a little book with me with all of the names of all of the pilots in the squadron because i was scheduling their flights and i had to keep that book with me all the time because everybody always wanted to know which flights they were on i took that book out and i started ripping out the pages that had their names and eating the pages yes. so that the enemy could not, uh, you know, could not figure out from that book the other members of my squadron. So I hit the ground, captured immediately, hauled into a prison camp, uh, tortured for two days for mostly propaganda and, uh, and military information, which I had very little of, and tossed into a little eight-foot-by-eight-foot prison cell. Charlie, what, what, the idea of them torturing you, was, was it primarily revenge that they're looking for? Or are they truly looking for information that you, you just can't even provide? Uh, good question, John. The, it was a, a lot of revenge, especially on the level of the guys doing the torture. Now, the upper level wanted to rehabilitate us. Ho Chi Minh was their president at the time, and he came out with a statement, we are going to we're going to re-educate these fighter pilots and send them back home good communists. And that's what he intended to do. And so the torture was their way of trying to reduce us to, to nothing, you know, just, just to, to mere animals, uh, and then rebuild our mind and our hearts uh, with their 
philosophy. And so, so that, that was the direction from the top. As it got down to the goons that tortured me, then these guys did, I think, have a lot of revenge in their heart. Without going into the detail, you know, you go into as much as you'd like, Charlie, but was there a point, a a low point for you during that six-year run? Well, the torture, of course, was physically painful, Uh, and I, I almost died in the torture, but when, you know, when I felt like I might be close to death, they would loosen the ropes or stop the whips or they let me down from this hook that they were hanging me from. Uh, and and it, it was very encouraging to me to know that they knew that I was close to death, and they weren't, and they weren't going to go that far. Um, so, so that was the low point and the high point that yeah. came within seconds of each other. Uh, what kept you going while you're being hung and whipped and beat and everything else that you're going through, the inhumanity that you faced? You know, of course, I have a very strong faith, and I was convinced that there was a purpose to all of this, and I might never know what it is, but uh, there was a purpose, and if I could endure this. And then I established levels of levels of, uh, of pain, uh, plateaus, yes. if you will. Uh, when, the, you know, the torture got just unbearable, I would think to myself, I'm still alive, and if it doesn't get any worse than this, I'm going to survive this. And then they tighten the ropes, or they would increase the whips, and it got worse. And then I would establish another plateau and say, okay, this really, really hurts now, but I'm still alive. I'm still, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm still uh, enduring this, and if I can hold on at this level, then I'm going to be okay. And then it got really, really, really worse. <laughs> yes. So these levels of pain seemed to help me um, you know, survive uh, as the torture got worse. Charlie, you're enduring the torture by yourself, but you're not in the camp completely by yourself. What, t- t- tell us a little bit about what, what the camp that you're, uh, you're interned, what, what it's like. Well, I was in several different camps. I was a total of six different camps, and those on and off about every six months, they yes. move us around. The first camp and the last camp I was in is the one they call the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, th- th- that's our words, not theirs. Yes. And it was it was sort of a uh, a humorous joke uh, among the POWs. And and within the Hanoi Hilton, then we had several different cell blocks, and we named the cell blocks after after Las Vegas casinos, believe it or not. And so we had to keep our humor. But the the but the first camp, uh, Wallo was their name for it. And the one we called the Hanoi Hilton had been built by the French in the mid 1800s to house the Vietnamese. Well, the Vietnamese are much smaller people, and they have much smaller uh, ankles and much smaller wrists. And so, when they put the manacles on our hands and the shackles on our legs, uh, our, our bones were too big uh, for this. And so, uh, so. Uh, any any POW you run into from Vietnam, if you ask them to show them your wrists or, or their ankles, you will see scars from uh, from the manacles and the shackles uh, that were holding us down. Uh, it was a jail. It wasn't a prisoner of war camp. It was jail cells. And so we were in individual cells, and a lot of us were in solitary confinement for a long time. 
I think the record was uh, Senator Jeremiah Denton was uh, in solitary for uh, four and a half years. Yes. So, but we established a communication technique. It was clandestine. Uh, In fact, if you were caught doing this, you were taken back to the torture room. But we found it was vital that we communicate with the other Americans. And we did. And uh, any, any way we possibly could. Um, we would tug on wires or tap on walls. Um, one of the POWs came in with a code. It's an old miner's code where different numbers would represent different letters of the alphabet or abbreviations. Yes. We would tap uh, on the walls. Um, it, took, it took forever to get your thought across. Uh, but the importance of the communication wasn't the thought. Yes. <laughs> it wasn't the words. It wasn't the meaning. It wasn't the data that we were passing around from cell to cell. The importance of the communication was a simple validation of another human being. Because in the prison cells, when it was dark, as it was in a lot of the camps, and if you were in solitary confinement, um, you'd lose track. You, you, you wouldn't know what was a, a real hallucination, or a, a real memory, um, you needed a baseline. You needed to validate your sanity. You need a sounding board. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, it, it's sometimes you, you wouldn't even know if you were alive or dead. You know, am, am I really living through this? Yes. Because there was no nobody to tell you that you were alive. The simple tugging on a wire, and to have that wire tugged back from that hole in the wall, meant two things to you. Number one, I'm alive. Yes. Somebody's responding to something I am doing physically. Number two, somebody over there cares. And it was that you know, it was that revelation that um, you know that, that that brought us hope. And it was to the point where if a guy was put into a a, a prison cell off the beaten track uh, in a far corner of a camp and couldn't communicate with the rest of us, he probably wasn't going to survive. Uh, it was just that vital that we validate each other's existence. Charlie, as you're going through six years of torture and abuse and starvation and illness and everything else, was there a time when you look back to that day when you were shot down and you wished, you know what, I wish one of those, the flack or the bullets or the villagers had just finished me off? I, no, I never, ever felt that way. And there was never a day, it never got so bad in that prison camp that I, that I was hoping for death. I always had a spark of hope within me, and um, uh, and and of course now, you know, looking back on the whole issue, and I know we'll get to that in a minute. I I think of my adversity as you think of yours, and 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 as most people think of theirs, yes. is that hey, it may have been the best thing could happen to me. <laughs> no, I didn't enjoy going through it, but but oh by the way, you know, uh, so many of the benefits of our lives happened because you were burned and I was shot down. (laughs) Well, let's talk about a few of those benefits. You, well, before we even talk about the benefits, Charlie, why do you think that you survived this time and so many others who were brought in and treated the same way and given the same food or lack thereof food did not survive? Well, it's, first of all, as I mentioned to you, I'm a religious guy and I had faith that there was a purpose to all of this. That that meant a lot. Um, secondly, my attitude 
of uh, of having a choice. You know, I I know you you reference uh, Victor Franklin in your book on fire. Yes, and uh, I had read that book before I went to the prison camp. The whole idea. What a gift. That, that, that if you know the why, yeah. uh, you can endure the how. And uh, it was really interesting because for the first several months, you know, I could not figure out the why. I, I was bitter. I was angry. I mean, the vitriol within me, I wanted to strangle every one of these guards that was um, doing the torture. And I, I, I just, uh, about the three or four month period, it hit me that I was killing myself with this, mm. uh, not knowing the why of it all. And so I decided there's got to be a purpose to this. I don't know what it is. I may never know what it is, but there's got to be a purpose. And if there's a why, then I can figure out how to survive. We also had a, we had a, a, very, um, a very solid leadership in that camp. You know, um, Admiral Jeremiah Denton and uh, Admiral Jim Stockton. They weren't admirals at the time. Nice. They were just, uh, you know, they were just regular fighter pilots like the rest of us. Uh, John McCain, who was my flight instructor. Yes. I knew John quite well when he came into the camp. But these guys got together and they told us the why of it all. And one of the things I do, John, besides uh, motivational speaking, is that I do leadership seminars. And, and I, I try to get leaders to to express to their followers the why of it all. And these guys, the, the leaders in the prison camp, decided, hey, we are not victims. We are not on the defensive here. I think, wait a minute. <laughs> you're, you're a prisoner of war. You're bleeding from four open wounds, no medical care. You've got boils all over your body. Yes. You know, you're down about half your normal weight. You're eating bugs, <laughs> and, 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 you're not, and you're not a victim here. <laughs> No, you're not a victim. You're a warrior, you know. Pull up your big boy pants because we're going to fight this war till our last breath. Yes. And it was really interesting. Just the leadership changed the whole attitude of the camp that, that, that we, we, were not, we were not in this really negative situation, that we were in a, that we, we were in a positive situation, and, uh, and we were going to continue to be warriors. Charlie, one one thing that amazes me about you specifically, but also you mentioned some big names, admirals and senators, and there's a, there's a long list, is so many of the men who left these torturous situations, years and years of abuse, go on to have remarkable lives, like huge, huge impact. I'm curious why you think that is. We have surprised an awful lot of people. When we came home, they thought we'd be vegetables. They thought we'd be in baskets. They had our families brief to institutionalize us the rest of our lives. From 591 men, we have produced 17 generals, seven admirals. Most of us retired as senior grade military officers. I retired as a Navy captain. Uh, We went back to flying airplanes and commanding ships and battalions all over the world. We have... um, two ambassadors, two United States senators, a vice presidential candidate, a presidential candidate, a bunch of congressmen, doctors, lawyers, preachers, teachers, bishops, judges, uh, and, and they're, telling us, they're telling us today that we're healthier mentally and physically than the fighter pilots who weren't shot down. Yes. Pretty amazing. It's well, shocking. Tell me about that. Why, why is this, Charlie? Well, I... I the... the, the uh, the guys that know a whole lot more about this than I do um, 
and some of them have come up with with post traumatic growth. You know, um, you you um, you had uh, uh, Michaela Haas. Remember her? Yes, I remember her last, well. Last November, okay, she talked on your on your podcast, and and for for your listeners, go back to November seventeenth because this gal really knows a yes. lot about this post traumatic growth. And a study was done just two years ago of all the combatants of Vietnam. 30.6% have post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Of the prisoners of war, 4% of us have PTSD. And and the guys that have the problems mostly are the guys that were only there for a few weeks or a month or two. Yes. I mean, the guys who were there the longest, eight and a half years, you know, was uh, Ev Alvarez. Uh, the guys who were there the longest seem to have come back the healthiest. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, but you're asking me why, and I can only give you my impression of why. Perfect. First of all, first of all, um, you, you, we we had great leadership, and I I think that any one of the 591 guys who came home will tell you that that he owes his survival, and I certainly do, to guys like Jim Stockdale. Uh, and Jeremiah Denton, and 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 the mid-level uh, leaders too in that prison camp. We were all officers, well, uh, for the most part, uh, the vast majority. It was an air war. We were all pilots, and it was just a question of unifying the guys. Now, our leaders couldn't see us. They couldn't talk to us. Yes. They, they couldn't fire us. They couldn't hire us. They couldn't give us a bonus or a vacation. And yet they inspired us with the why of, uh, of our being there. And once we, once we figured that out, once we had a mission, the mission statement um, was return with honor. Mm. And, uh, and that's what Jim Stockdale came up with. In fact, we just commissioned a destroyer uh, uh, with his name. James Bond Stockdale, it's a guided missile destroyer, and the the mission of that destroyer it's right on the right on the uh, bridge of the ship it says return with honor, and that was that was our mission, a simple mission statement, and yet he challenged us that every decision we made in that prison camp would be uh, surrounded by that that uh, that motto, that's one sing, single mantra. Charlie, what in eventually brings your six-plus years uh, of confinement to an end? A peace treaty was signed. <clears throat> the um, President Nixon finally sent in the B-52s, the bombers, all right? Uh, these are heavy bombers. And we were, even though they were hitting pretty close to our prison camps, we were so happy to see those guys come in because it was the only thing the enemy understood was brute force. And these these big bombers would carry around a hundred thousand pounds of bombs. <laughs> I mean, it, it really tore up the place, uh, and that sent them to the negotiation table. Now, unfortunately, like so many of our wars, we pretty much won the war and we lost the peace. the The peace ne- negotiation uh, made the enemy promise that they would not that they would not attack South Vietnam, which started the whole war, Yes, was North Vietnam attacking the South. And, uh, and when they did start attacking South Vietnam, our, of course, this was back in Watergate and the change of administration, and the new administration did not hold them 
to the peace treaty. And and so that was that was sort of the disappointing end of the Vietnam War <clears throat> was that yes we we bombed them as the Christmas bombings of 1972 and uh and they capitulated but in the peace treaty itself we didn't hold them to their end of the bargain and they then um invaded South Vietnam and uh and and and, and killed an awful lot of people in yes. doing so why were you set free? There was a part of the peace treaty was a, an exchange of prisoners of war. We had about ten thousand of them, and so we traded ten thousand of those guys for five hundred ninety-one of us. Charlie, do you feel that we have guys over there, had guys over there for decades that that weren't able to make it home, that were confined this entire time? No, that's not my personal belief. Um, that is the belief of some people that. The tragedy, well, there's a lot of tragedy in war, but one of the tragedies is that we lose people that we will never know yes. how they died. And, and uh, you know, in the United States, when we can take a picture of a golf ball from the moon, we think, wait a minute, you know, the guy's got to be somewhere. What happened to him? But I personally have seen airplanes go down at sea. And it's just it's a it's a blip, you know. It's a it, yes. It, it, there's no debris. There's no body. There's no nothing. And the guys, you know, guys, a couple of miles in in the mud under the ocean. I've seen guys go down uh, in dense jungle. The jungle over there is about 200 feet high, and it's uh, several canopies, as many as five canopies. Yes. To the point that in the bottom of the jungle, you can't tell red from green. It's too dark. And an airplane that goes down into that in that flora just disappears. There's no smoke. There's no fire. It, it's unbelievable. The first time you see this is the here's a 52 foot airplane screaming down, and then it just bloop. It disappears. So how do you how do you prove how do you prove that the guy didn't eject at the last minute and uh, and come floating down and is is still alive? You, you can't. And so what we've tried to do is make the best guess that we could. And there's still, you know, we still are digging up bones over yes. there trying to prove these guys um, had died. How, Charlie, how did you hear that you were going to receive freedom? They'd, they had tried to uh, trick us many, many times. And so, you know, they, the camp commander would come in and say, hey, just sign this confession and we're going to let you go or just make this tape to the anti-war element in the States, and we'll let you go. It was all a propaganda deal for them. And that's what we were resisting. That was our, that was our main uh, effort, was to resist their propaganda. So we had we had, uh, we'd seen them try to trick us many times, and so we were really reluctant to believe it. They started feeding us better and allowing us outside to put a little color in our face and a little meat on our bones, and I think that was the first indicator. Then they, they came in with a, a, a piece of um, uh, a, a, well, toilet paper, but it's like wrapping paper, uh, asked us to put our foot on the paper, and they traced around our foot. They were going to make some shoes for us. We hadn't seen a pair of shoes in six years. And, uh, and sure enough, they brought in a brand-new pair of leather shoes and then a pair of trousers with a zipper. I hadn't seen a zipper in six years. Yes. So, so that was really the first indicator. When you fully know in your mind and your heart that you're going home, Charlie, what, 
just kind of walk me through some of those emotions you're feeling. The it wasn't really real until that Air Force C-141 cargo jet lifted off the runway at Geelong Airport in Hanoi. Uh, because you know, as long as we were on enemy soil, we couldn't believe it. Once that once the airplane lifted off and the landing gear started coming up, we just broke loose and started hugging and kissing mostly the Air Force nurses on yes. and, and knew that we were free. Uh, it, it was a feeling a, a feeling of elation that you you just cannot I mean you're, you're I can't imagine literally right up in your throat. Yes. Now ninety minutes later when we landed in um, uh, Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, I went to the first phone I could find to call my wife to tell her the good news, you know, that I'd survived this and we were going to be better because yes. of our experience. And she had filed for divorce just three months before I came home. So she was engaged to another guy. So, uh, I, I, again, you know, my my joy uh, yes. Short -lived. To, to sorrow and concern. Um when I when, when we touched down at uh, at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, man, you know I uh, I travel a lot for work, and when I go to bed, and you know I, I miss home. I go to bed fre frequently thinking about my bride and thinking about my babies, and I can't wait to get home to them. Six and a half years, Charlie. I, I would imagine many, many, many nights you went to bed with her on your mind, and as her as part of the why that you're going to return home. Ninety minutes after you take off, when you land, call home, and you learn that she's divorcing you and she's remarrying. How do you go on, man? How does that not finally break you? Well, first of all, let me let me speak to the why. Um, I've been asked several times, hey, don't you wish you had known? Because she had met this guy and fallen in love with him just a couple of years after I was gone. Don't, Charlie, don't you wish you had known that she was going to divorce you? No way. Right. No, she was the why. I planned the next 20 years of my life around that lady, you know, and trying to, to make it up to her for the challenges she had faced along with me and i had i had 20 years of birthdays and christmases and meals i you know i i, I dreamed yes you know every day i prayed for every day and so it was quite a shock now um <laughs> and, and it was interesting because uh the, the first person that i met at clark air force base they hauled me into a room with a psychiatrist and he said, you really need to get bitter about this. You need to get angry. Go back to your hospital room and, you know, tear up the yeah. pillows and kick in the door. Because if you don't show some, some physical uh, response to this tragedy, the longer you wait, um, the more difficult it's going to be to the point that you'll have a mental breakdown. Well, that was 43 years ago. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the mental breakdown. My, you know, my, here's my thought process. Hey, I, how, how can I be unhappy? I've just, I've just been released from prison. Yes. You know, I, I've just, I, I've just come through a period of my life where 24-7, I didn't know if I'd be alive the next day. And suddenly, I am free. There's no way, there's no way you're going to rain on my, my parade. Uh, and so, again... You know, I thought to myself, um, well, the, the, there's a purpose for all of this. Yes. And there is. Interestingly enough, my, my first wife, 
disappeared from sight. She married the guy she was engaged to, and uh, and I didn't hear from her until last year. In fact, it was uh, yeah, it was it was a year ago. It was April of last year because it was just before thanks. It was just before Easter. Um, I got a package in the mail. The package didn't have her name or it had an address on it, and I didn't know who it was from because I didn't know where she lived. It had a letter in that package from my mother to my first wife the week I was shot down. And it was a very prophetic letter. Um, The letter said, said, uh, Charlie had so much potential. It's really too bad, you know that he won't be able to use his potential in the situation that he's in. And then the next sentence, very prophetic, said, but who knows what God has planned. Yes. This situation may give him more ability to touch the hearts and minds of people. And that was the week I was shot down. My mother figured this out. <laughs> Your mother sends this a week after you get shot down, and your first wife sends it to you 41 years later. Yep. Um, how do you feel about your first wife today? This is your high school sweetheart, and you know through the years of Annapolis and then into Pensacola and beyond, she's, she's your girl. Uh, yep, yep. T- she, she will always be my first love. Um, and, um, and actually, after I got this, this letter from her with my mom's, uh, I, I found her address, and I sent her back a note, and then we talked on the phone just a couple of months ago, and and you know, and, and I apologized to her for putting her through that. She had some terrible psychological problems uh, when I was shot down. I have a brother ten years younger than I am who looks a lot like me, and he would go over to mow her lawn, and he was at the age he was seventeen when uh, at the same age that my first wife and I had met. So he looked an awful lot like me. When he showed up to mow her lawn, she would break out in serious, I mean, emergency room type hives, and she would be hospitalized because she had seen my brother. So it really wore on her. And, uh, you know, she, as I I said, I really believe that in a lot of ways she had it tougher than I did. Charlie, in any uh, stories you want to share as we begin wrapping up of, of the ability that one person has to profoundly touch the life of another? Let me tell you uh, about my parachute packer. I'm glad you I will. A, I was in a restaurant uh, in Kansas City, and about two tables over, a guy kept looking at me, and he came over uh, and started asking me who I was and what my – in fact, he was, he was reciting my history. You flew off the aircraft carrier, fighter pilot. You were shot down. You parachuted into enemy hands. And I said, how did you know all that? And he said, I'm the guy that packed your parachute. Well, I was I was dumbfounded, you know, for, for a guy that speaks for a living. I was speak, speechless. Yes. And, and so I stood up, and and, uh, and the only thing I could do was reach out a very grateful hand of thanks and and he grabbed my hand and he pumped my arm and he said, I guess it worked. <laughs> well, of course, he knew that it had worked because yes. I was alive. But we had a long conversation that night uh, about the the parachute packers. And I said, I've, I've said a lot of prayers of thanks for your nimble fingers, but I had no idea I'd have the opportunity of expressing my gratitude. And and he said, well, I'm not the only parachute packer in your life. 
He said, in fact, I, I, I only packed your physical parachute. You know, your parents, your big sister, your little brother, your, your, your preacher, your coaches, uh, they're the ones that packed your psychological and spiritual parachute that allowed you that safe descent and even uh, safe passage through yes. six years of, of that prison camp. So the metaphor, uh, I think, and if I have a message for your listeners, is that, hey, who, who packs your yes. parachute? And, and have you thanked them lately? And, you know, the obvious next sentence is, and whose parachute are you packing today? Exactly, and yeah. Exactly. What, what an awesome opportunity to not only give thanks to those who packed ours, but to pack more than maybe today we currently do. Absolutely. Charlie, for those of us who uh, are in a prison cell today, uh, of someone else's making or our own, or it's just a struggle, a storm we're in the middle of. What, what encouragement would you have for those of us struggling today? My first, my, you know, my, my first suggestion is, hey, you have to look for the value in, in the challenge. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that adversity is a horrible thing to waste. Yes. You, wa- you waste a challenge in your life by blaming other people for your problems and feeling sorry for yourself. Uh, and when you do that, away, away goes your opportunity to be better because of the challenge you're facing. So, you know, the first thing would be believe that there's value here and that there's a purpose to this and then search for it. And it really is tough uh, to tell people this. Uh, Michaela, Michaela Haas yes. uh, was excellent in, you know, in her uh, verbiage of Agreed. this. She said, you know, when somebody's going through this, it's really tough to convince them that there's value here. And yet, that's the first step, is realizing there's value in the situation. Then the second thing, once you even have an inkling that there's value in the challenge that you face, then you have to, you have to, kick down what's left of your comfort zone. You know, you have to get further outside yourself. This is another thing. The last thing in the world I want to do when I'm in a defensive posture is, is to is stand up and fight back, you know, is to, is to get, is to uh, become more in peril, you know, yes. to, to go further into the, this extremist condition. Uh, and yet that's what you have to do. Uh, you have to take a risk. You have to uh, get outside yourself. The third thing I, I think you really have to do is you have to you have to talk to other people. Mm. You have to you have to be able to to find common ground and find um, find a baseline, find a, a, a value system to share with someone. You know, it's that it's that. Um, support group yes. that we all need but we're afraid to to reach out when we're under pressure so there's these these are all not easy things at all you know it takes work to figure out what the what the value is in adversity Charlie, as you know, because I, I understand that you, uh, you've you heard a few of our podcasts and now we're delighted that you're part of this one, we wrap up our interviews with seven questions that kind of lock all of them together. Uh, it's a thread that pulls it all together. So I'm looking forward to guiding you through the Live Inspired Seven. I, um, 
I am not prepared, but uh, but I have thought about them. <laughs> well, brother, here we go, man. I I think Fire life ready. life has prepared you for this. You've endured much worse than these seven. So here here's okay. number one. What's the best book you've ever read? Uh, you know, I I, I think uh, probably the Bible and the, the chapter of Job is, is pretty yes. appropriate. But a current book called Unbroken. Yes. Louis Zamperini was a, was a pal of mine, and. Um, and I stood in for him in some speeches that he was going to give when he got sick. He died a couple of years ago. But his book, Unbroken, I think epitomizes your philosophy and my philosophy of, of winning through adversity. Thank you for that. Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle, maybe in Kansas, has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions, Charlie Plum. What would you do with that newfound wealth? You know, I feel a lot for the veterans that do have PTSD, and there's a program in Virginia uh, called Boulder Crest. Uh, in fact, you might think of some of these guys that put on your program, because these are veterans that have have some serious problems, and, and, they, and they are big believers in this PTG, post-traumatic growth yes. at Boulder Crest. They're trying to set up a new center in Arizona, and I think that I'd probably uh, spend some money uh, trying to put them to expand expand their um, reach because they really are doing a lot of good for veterans. Uh, Charlie Plum, if your house caught fire and all living people and all living things, animals, for instance, are out, you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing that really matters to you today. What, what would you gr- go in and grab? My, you know, my first thought is get my computer because it's got all the pictures and all that stuff, but it's all backed up. So I think I think what I would get is I have I have a tin cup that uh, has holes in it and uh, that I brought back from the prison camp. Uh, I had I patched up the holes with earwax so that it would hold water, and I I keep that tin cup just to remind me of the challenge that I faced and the value of the challenge uh, within that tin cup. Oh, gosh, man. I, I've never heard that part about your story. Well, I don't think I've ever told that. <laughs> uh, at some point, Charlie, either digitally or face-to-face, I would love to see that tin cup and uh, <laughs> to shake the hand of the man who drank from it. I'll send you a picture of it. <laughs> awesome, man. All right. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a gorgeous beach on a beautiful day, and just sit next to anybody, living or dead. Who would you want to sit next to and have a long conversation with, Charlie? I'd have to go back and talk to my mother. You know, she endured so much while I was over there. She had a full head of uh, brunette hair when I left and a full head of gray hair when I came back. But she never blamed anybody about anything. I I never, ever, never heard my mother say a bad word about any human being. And, and, the longer I live, the more I appreciate her her approach to forgiveness, mm. and I just would like to chat with her a little bit more <laughs> about about uh, how you forgive the unforgivable. Worthy conversation. What what's the best advice you've ever received? A coach early on in this Liberty town in Kansas uh, told me that it wasn't the things around me that was going to change my life. He was a veteran. He had shrapnel in his leg from his war. He said, it's not the things around you. It's the choices you make about the things around you. And you can choose to be a winner, and you can choose to be a loser, and you can choose to give away that choice. Yes. Charlie, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? 
you know, my 20-year-old self, I was graduating from the Naval Academy, had this great career, had a wonderful life. And the thing I tell myself, not knowing what I was going to be going through, was uh, was to believe in a purpose, you know, a whole whole purpose at the highest priority. Mm. Charlie Plum, it has been said that all great people, and I'm speaking to one right now, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? I think I, I, that's that's another tough one. I, I I think I'd like to say he was a servant. Captain J. Charles Plum, my friend, you have returned with honor, and you have shared... Uh, not only an incredible story of endurance, but of sacrifice and forgiveness and grace and love, and we're better because of you, man. John, I really appreciate that, my friend, uh, and I think I'm a better person because of you and your programs and your book, and uh, you're my main man, pal. Charlie Plum, you spent six years in internment, uh, concentration in, in the, these camps, and yet you've come out with an incredible spirit. Thank you for spending about an hour with us. Thank you for, uh, again, reminding us that the best is yet to come. Where can we learn more about your story? My website, charlieplum.com, that's C-H-A-R-L-I-E-P-L-U-M-B. It's my name, and uh, it's all there. I've written books and I have videotapes. I speak all over the, the world, so... Uh, and I'm very open. I answer every email that anybody sends me. So I, um, I'm, I'm an open book. Not only is he an open book, he's also one of the most phenomenal presenters I've ever heard. I had, the, had an opportunity in Columbus, Ohio, to speak a few years ago. Had no idea who else was on the lineup. And directly before I went on the stage, they introduced a gentleman named Charlie Plum. And it was Charlie. The joy of a lifetime to sit there and listen to a true phenomenal speaker share their heart share their story and encourage the rest of us to do our lives a little better so my friends this was charlie plum i am john o'leary and today is your day live inspired well my friends that interview sitting across from a hero of mine a guy that i look up to a gentleman i respect not only for his service, for his heart, for his faithfulness, for his forgiveness, but for his example, for his ability to articulate out what the rest of us are so hungry and thirsty for, that in spite of the challenges that have come into our life, some of them self-made, others uh, accidental in some regards, others forced upon us, that the best is yet to come that the best is yet to come. And what better example is there of that truth than Charlie Plum? My friends, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, please take a few moments right now to rate the show and review the podcast. It's a quick and easy way that helps get the word out. Although the show in some regards is still new, it's in its infancy still, and we are touching lives all around the world already, hundreds of thousands of downloads That's awesome, by the way, and that is you, by the way. Take a moment right now to rate this show. Let others know uh, what you're thinking about it. Let me know that you're enjoying it. Share with me your comments and thoughts on what's working and how we can make it even better going forward. And don't just stop there. Tell the folks that you work with, that you live with, that you carpool with, that you do life with about the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. 
in a community that is so full of negativity, remind them that there are bright lights, that there are reasons for us to grab on to hope, reasons for us to wake up from accidental living so that we each, all of us, can live inspired. Because what we know on this episode, what we know on this podcast is that everybody has a story. It's frequently not the story we are telling the world, but our stories are worthy and the best is yet to come. My friends, for this time, And until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired.